If I could just say a quick word of appreciation and thanks um, on behalf of my wife and me, just for all the kind notes and uh, texts and meals and gifts uh, as we welcomed our third child, uh, little boy Judah, a couple of weeks ago. It really is a privilege to be one of the pastors of this church, but it's a far greater privilege to be a member of the church and to receive the love and helps of the church body. So thank you for loving us so well and encouraging uh, our family. Uh, if you have a copy of God's Word, please turn to Isaiah chapter 57. Uh, it, the first Sunday in December, we interrupted a series in First Peter. We will return to that series, God willing, in a couple of weeks, but we will be this morning in Isaiah chapter 57. And we'll be considering just one verse together. It'll be verse 15. Isaiah 57, verse 15. There we read this. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place, and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit, to revive the spirit of the lowly, and to revive the heart of the contrite. On August 16th, 1977, a great king died. I'm, of course, referring to the king, and that is Elvis Presley. Uh, throughout his career, Presley had won the hearts of untold millions as the so-called king of rock and roll. Uh, one of the hearts that he won belonged to my grandmother, belongs to my grandmother, who to this day uh, insist that at a concert she went to, Elvis Presley actually sweat on her. I guess he had a move where he would, I don't know, shake his head or something and some sweat came off onto my grandmother. Uh, eternity will verify whether or not that's true. Elvis produced hundreds of songs and sold millions of records around the world. And sadly, in 1977, at the age of 42, he died of a heart attack uh, that was likely caused by an overdose of drugs. After Presley's death, a fan named Dennis Wise was interviewed by the Boston Globe. And Wise has made a career as an Elvis impersonator, and he believes himself to be the greatest Elvis fan ever. Uh, he even had, get this, he had his face lifted by a plastic surgeon uh, to resemble Elvis, and even had his hair contoured to match the style of his departed idol. Uh, in that interview with the Boston Globe, Dennis Wise said this, Yes, sir, Presley's been an idol of mine since I was five years old. I have every record he cut twice over. I have pictures in the thousands, magazines, pillows, t-shirts, figurines, cups, and plates. I have every book I can find about him, some even in Japanese and in Chinese. I even have leaves from the lawn of Graceland. That's Elvis's famous mansion. In school, when Elvis began to wear white boots, I bought white boots. The kids all called them fruit boots. I saw him in concert every opportunity that came my way. I tried to get close to him every time, but he was always surrounded by too many people. I never really saw him. I mean, really saw him. Sure, I went to concerts, but there was no contact. I even stood on the wall at Graceland for over 12 hours once to get a glimpse of him, but I never could get close to him. I never knew him, and he never knew me. All the effort I put into following him, and I never could seem to get close. Now, if you ask me, 
Dennis Wise's story is truly tragic, and no part of his story is more tragic than those words, I never knew him, and he never knew me, all the effort I put into following him, and I never could seem to get close. Now, Wise's statements about Elvis do not represent casual, lighthearted fandom. I would argue that they more closely resemble those of a worshiper toward a god. And Wise's God was, in the end, inaccessible to him and ultimately unknowable by him. Perhaps if Wise knew somewhere he could go, some private place away from the security guards and the crowds that surrounded Elvis all the time, perhaps he could have gotten close to him. Perhaps if he knew how to push past the throngs of people or to get through the walls of Graceland, he could have had some time with his idol. But he never got a glimpse. It never happened. Of course, for many who actually do get the opportunity to meet their icons, the experience can be cripplingly disillusioning. Uh, Somehow they never really live up to the hype. Maybe you've had that experience, someone you idolize or some hero you look up to and then you met them and they just disappointed you in some way or another. I wonder if any of you here watch uh, the hit Netflix show, The Crown. My wife and I really enjoy that show. It's a show that follows the British monarchy, particularly under Queen Elizabeth uh, II. And um, my favorite episode is in season three. There's four seasons of the show. And in season three, episode seven, it's an episode called Moon Dust. If you're not really interested in watching the show, I'd at least recommend you watch that one episode. You don't have to watch the show or appreciate the rest of the show to appreciate that episode. But in this episode, you have Prince Philip, the Duke of Edinburgh, the husband of the Queen, and uh, he's dealing with something of the midlife crisis. And the episode tracks Prince Philip's fascination with the Apollo 11 moon landing in 1969. So he's tracking with it on the television screen, the old television screens they had in those days. He's utterly obsessed with the moon landing. He used to be a pilot himself, and so he can appreciate some of the technical features of what the astronauts were trying to do in a way that maybe others couldn't. And he's just enthralled by these astronauts and what it is that they're trying to do. And so they actually do, of course, land on the moon, Neil Armstrong, Buzz Aldrin, Michael Collins. They land on the moon in 1969, and then they come back to Earth, and they go on tour, basically. And they're going to visit all these different nations and people and all of that. And uh, Prince Philip learns that they're going to visit Uh, the palace, Buckingham Palace, and he, of course, idolizes these astronauts. They represent the greatest achievement of humankind ever, and he asks for a private audience with these astronauts, and he gets it, and he sits down with them, and he's, he's eager to interview them and ask them all these certain questions, and it's really touching the way they capture this, really eye-opening. You can, you can see as he's interviewing these astronauts, how steadily disillusioned he becomes with these guys. They're young guys, they actually all have colds in the interview, and they're just very juvenile, they're like yuppies, and you know, really excited to be in the palace, and really giddy to be there. And Philip, little by little, as the conversation goes on, you can see him visibly become disillusioned with these men. And then in the next scene, he has an audience with his wife after that, and he says this, I didn't know what I was thinking. I expected them to be giants gods. In reality, they were just three little men, pale-faced with colds. The lack of flair or imagination, the total absence of originality or spontaneity, and entirely anticlimactic when you meet them in person. They delivered as astronauts. They disappointed as human beings. Well, of course, Christians don't worship Elvis. 
and they don't worship astronauts. We worship God, and indeed our lives revolve around Him. In fact, our lives derive their very meaning from Him. But as Christians, it's worth asking how our experiences with God compare to the experiences of Dennis Wise or Prince Philip. See, Dennis Wise couldn't access his God. He couldn't actually get close to Him or know Him. Well, what about us? Can we access God? Can we truly know Him? And if we can know Him, will we become disillusioned with Him in the way that Prince Philip was disillusioned with the Apollo 11 astronauts? Our text this morning helps us answer these questions. So let me ask you, where is God? That's a question the smallest child might ask. Mommy, Daddy, where's God? Where does God live? It's a question a lot of people were asking on 9-11. It's a question a lot of people are asking today. Where is God? How would you answer that question? We have two answers provided in our text this morning. Let me read Isaiah 57, 15 again. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place, and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit, to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. Where is God? God dwells in two places. Number one, he dwells in the high and holy place. Number two, he dwells with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit. Consider with me these two places where God dwells. First of all, God dwells in the high and holy place. When theologians wish to describe God's existence above and separate from us, they use the term transcendence. Now, this conveys the idea that God is beyond us, that He is so far beyond us that He is, in the truest sense, incomprehensible to us. There are dimensions to His being that are beyond our grasp to know and to understand. His perfections and His attributes and His nature put Him in a category of person altogether beyond our imminent frame of reference. This idea of God's bigness, His greatness, His transcendence, His incomprehensibleness is a theme that runs all throughout the Bible. Let me just draw your attention to a few texts, well-known texts that capture this idea. Isaiah 55, verses 8 and 9, the Lord says, "'For my thoughts are not your thoughts.'" Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. Job 11, verse 7, the Lord asked Job, can you find out the deep things of God? Can you find out the limit of the Almighty? It's a rhetorical question. The answer is obviously no. Psalm 8, verse 1, we read, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him? Or the son of man that you care for him? Ecclesiastes 3, verse 11, He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, He has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he can't find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. Now, you may think that's, that's the Old Testament view of God. But when we turn to the New Testament, we don't get a diminished view of God. Uh, rather, the same theme 
uh, pulls through into the New Testament. Romans 11, verse 33, the Apostle Paul says, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God! How unsearchable are His judgments! How inscrutable His ways! For who has known the mind of the Lord? And who has been His counselor? Or who has given a gift to Him that He might be repaid? For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be glory forever and ever. Amen. So do you feel something of the refrain of these texts? God is big. God is awesome. God is mighty. God is majestic. God is transcendent. God is beyond us, unfathomable and incomprehensible. Who can approach the God of these texts? He is transcendent. He is beyond us. He is far greater than we can possibly know or understand. Now pause for a moment and reflect on how far the ideas of these texts are from our modern notions of worship. What part do the ideas of these texts and other texts like them play in the thinking of the average 21st century churchgoer? Consider this quote from A.W. Tozer. Tozer penned these words 60 years ago, so in 1961. He penned these words in his book, The Knowledge of the Holy, and I contend that these words are even more relevant now than they were then. Tozer writes this, a condition has existed in the church for some years and is steadily growing worse. I refer to the loss of the concept of majesty from the popular religious mind. The church has surrendered her once lofty concept of God and has substituted it for one so low so ignoble as to be unworthy of thinking, worshiping men. This low view of God entertained almost universally among Christians today is the cause of a hundred lesser evils everywhere among us. For with our loss of the sense of the majesty of God has come the further loss of religious awe and consciousness of the divine presence. We have lost our spirit of worship and our ability to meet God in adoring silence. Modern Christianity is simply not producing the kind of Christian who can appreciate or experience or know the meaning of the words, be still and know that I am God. These words mean next to nothing to the self-confident, bustling worshiper in this period of the 20th century, end quote. And I would just add an addendum to this period of the 21st century. Well, what do you think? Do you think the shoe fits our modern notions of worship? Does this describe your experience of worship? Tozer is talking about the importance of maintaining a sense of the reality of God's greatness and His transcendence in our worship. And we have this idea in our text this morning. Where is God? Where can He be found? He is first found in the place of His transcendent glory, in the high and holy place. Look again at verse 15. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place. There are three main ideas that are presented in this first half of the verse that characterize God in the high and holy place. First of all, we learn that God is high. Secondly, that God is eternal. And thirdly, that God is holy. Let's just consider those three attributes briefly. First of all, God is high. He said to be high and lifted up. He dwells in the high place. Now that's not high in the sense of like spatial terms. 
Uh, you can think of it this way. If I say that I highly esteem you, well, what am I saying? If I hold you high in my affections or something like that. Well, I'm not saying you're taller than me, right? I'm saying you occupy a place of honor and regard and status and worth in my thoughts and in my admiration. Similarly, if I somehow offended you by action or by something I said, you said, Alex, that was so low of you. What would, what would you mean by that? Well, you wouldn't mean that I'm shorter than you, right? You would mean that what I said or what I did didn't accord to you the appropriate honor or dignity or status or worth that ought to be accorded an image bearer of God. That's the sense in which this term is being used to reference God's height, its status, its worth, its honor, its dignity. God is high. He's lifted up. He is on His throne. He is above us. He is in the place of height, place of dignity and worth. And this is what is said about God in our text. He is high and lifted up. He dwells in the high place. He is at a distance from us. We lowly humans cannot approach His height. Secondly, we learn that God is eternal. He's high and He is eternal, or as the text says, He inhabits eternity. Isn't that a striking phrase? God inhabits eternity. What does that mean? Could you precisely define what that means? After all, what is eternity? We know it's related to time, but what is time? Time's not a place. Eternity's not a place. So what could it mean that you inhabit eternity? Well, J. Oliver Buswell, Jr., once president of Wheaton College, defined time and eternity in this way. Time is the mere abstract or ideational possibility of the before and after relationship in durational sequence, and eternity is simply infinite time, that is time, so defined and extrapolated in both directions to infinity. So now do you see? Of course, this text is meant to impress us with some notions and ideas that are out of our reach that maybe we can't entirely understand. God inhabits eternity. Now, there's some things we can say about God in relation to eternity that are a little more concrete. We know, of course, that God Himself is eternal, that He lives forever. Uh, more than that, we know that eternal life belongs to Him. Eternal life is only found in Him. You and I only have eternal life by virtue of our connection to God. It's not as though God gives us a gift of eternal life and sends us on our way. We have eternal life in Him, through Him, in union with Him. What's more, we can also say that He is above or beyond time and is indeed the keeper of time and eternity. These are some of the ideas that might be present in that phrase, He inhabits eternity. But this is the picture Isaiah is conveying. God is high and lifted up. God inhabits eternity. He is eternal. Thirdly, we learn that God is holy. This attribute of all three in our text is probably the most emphasized because it is most closely connected with God's identity in the passage. Isaiah says that His name is holy and that He dwells in a holy place. Holiness is an attribute of God. It is His name. It's also the place where He dwells. What does it mean that God is holy? What idea is being conveyed with that word holy? Hopefully you know this if you've been a Christian for any length of time. In general, the term refers to a certain separateness, a sacredness. We normally speak of holiness in terms of separateness from sin, and that's certainly part of the idea here. But I think holiness also connotes a certain separateness from us. 
God is distinct from us. He is separate from us. God is altogether holy. We are not. And this quality of holiness produces a certain separation between us and God. God's holiness is that quality that makes Him distinct or separate from us. We are not peers with God. Never forget that. You are not God's peer. And even as the gospel elevates us to such a high status as God's sons and daughters, we are still nonetheless not God's equal. We're not His peer. Well, part of the reason I think this is the main idea here, that is holiness is God's distinctness from us, is because of what was written earlier in the book of Isaiah in chapter 6, verses 1 through 3. You don't have to turn there, but you may. Uh, This is a very well-known passage. This is in many ways uh, the definition or the purpose of this book. Isaiah is going to receive a vision from God. We read this in Isaiah 6, verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of His robe filled the temple. Above Him stood the seraphim, that's the angels. Each had six wings. With two, He covered His face, and with two, He covered His feet, and with two, He flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory." The idea here is that God is separate from us by virtue of His holiness, such that even the angels who have never sinned, they can't even be in the presence of God without covering their face, without covering their eyes with their wings, because they can't look on the holiness of God that is present in His temple. And Isaiah will go on to say a few verses on that that he's just entirely undone in the presence of such a holy God. Similarly, the Apostle John, when he has a similar vision in the book of Revelation, we read that he He buries his face in the dirt in the presence of God's holiness. The idea is that neither man nor angels can look upon the transcendent holiness of God. I'm reminded of what the Apostle Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 6. As he gives his benediction, he says that God dwells in unapproachable light. No one has ever seen him or can see him. Are you picking up on the theme? God is transcendent. God is above us. God is beyond us. God is high, eternal, holy, unapproachable. God is incomprehensible. He dwells in the high and holy place. Now, before moving to the next point, the second place where God dwells, I just want to mention two points of application or just two principles that we can derive from the teaching of this passage. Number one, first principle, an impoverished view of God and His glory leads to an impoverished Christian faith. An impoverished view of God and His glory leads to an impoverished Christian faith. Remember what Tozer said, this low view of God entertained almost universally among Christians today is the cause of a hundred lesser evils everywhere among us. A low view of God will impoverish our view of Christian experience, of sanctification, of prayer, of ministry, of worship, and everything else because our view of God affects everything. Why is it that in our day holiness is so low in our scale of priorities? Why are our kingdom ambitions so small? 
Our prayer lives so paltry, our Christian experience so meager, our theological and spiritual reflection utterly infantilized. I contend that these maladies begin with a low view of God and His glory. An impoverished view of God and His glory leads to an impoverished Christian faith, and there will never be a revival in these areas of Christian life and faith until there is a revival of a high view of God and His glory and His majesty and His transcendence among us. But I want to highlight a second principle that has to do more narrowly with worship, and it is this. Our worship will never rise higher than our view of God. Our worship, individually and corporately, will never rise higher than our view of God. Low views of God produce shallow worship. I'm not talking about the forms of worship now. I'm talking about what goes on in the human heart. Low views of God produce shallow worship, but lofty conceptions of God make for great and glorious worship. The higher our view of God, the greater our worship will be. When we see God as altogether awesome and great and majestic and holy and high and lifted up and altogether glorious, only then can we worship God aright. Now, how do you think the average 21st century Christian views the worship of God? Not like this. The average Christian approaches the worship of God in a manner that is altogether casual, careless, and carefree. Everything in our culture conditions us to be this way. Services are highly produced and carefully crafted to eliminate all dead space, because heaven forbid we have more than two seconds of reverential silence in the presence of God. It would, of course, be too awkward. The premium is placed on slick production, charismatic performance, and the maximum possible comfort level for the attender. And sadly, the average attender is eager to eat it up. We bustle in with our lattes, we slide in and out of our seats, we enjoy the casual and lighthearted bonhomie of the whole event. We drive home and we rate the music on a scale from one to ten. But whether or not the God of the Bible was actually present at all, doesn't even enter our evaluation of what took place. As David Wells has so aptly put it, we are inadvertently advertising the fact that God rests only lightly upon our gathering. Well, what is the antidote to this sacrilege misnamed a worship service? I contend it's a larger, higher, and grander view of God and His glory. Nothing ignites worship, motivates worship, impels worship like a true apprehension of the person and being and glory and majesty of God, understanding and knowing and appreciating God as He is in the high and holy place. Now, I'm afraid my tone has become a little too negative, a little too derisive, a little too critical. I really don't want to be negative. I want to make a positive appeal. Brothers and sisters, this kind of worship that actually apprehends God as He is in truth is the greatest and most glorious experience in all of life. To know God as He is and to worship Him as He is. To develop based upon the Bible and the things that have been revealed to us a true conception of God 
in all his glory and in his majesty. May God be pleased to give to our church, to churches across the world, accurate pictures of who he is, lofty thoughts of who he is. And may those lofty thoughts of God, that high view of God, enhance our worship, enliven our Christian experience, motivate us to godliness and to the mortification of sin, to prayer and to worship. May our view of God change us, change our church, and change our worship in the most wonderful sort of way. Consider with me secondly now and more briefly the second place where God dwells. God dwells in the high and holy place. He also dwells with Him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit. Uh, Bradley, I don't know if it's just me, but it feels unusually warm in here. Uh, If you wouldn't mind uh, knocking it down a degree or two. Thank you, brother. God dwells secondly with Him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit. God is in the high and holy place. He's in the place of His transcendent glory. But what we learn in the very next breath, wonder of wonders, is that this transcendent God dwells with the one, the man, the woman, the child, who is of a humble and contrite spirit. Here we want to ask two questions. What is a contrite and lowly spirit? And secondly, for what purpose does God dwell with such people? So first, what is a contrite and lowly spirit? Well, I'll tell you, first of all, what it is not. A contrite and lowly spirit is not low self-esteem. It's not just thinking badly about yourself. It's not to be equated with self-loathing or something like that. The Hebrew word for contrite literally means crushed or broken. And so we should ask, crushed how? If we're to have a contrite, a crushed spirit, what does that mean? But we are to be crushed by an awareness of sin and of weakness and failure, crushed by a sense of our own human frailty, crushed by the difficult and challenging circumstances of life in a fallen world. A contrite and lowly spirit refers to one who has been broken by life and by sin and understands the need for daily repentance and daily dependence on God. This person understands their creatureliness, their finitude, their contingency, their dependence, This is someone who feels the burdens of life and sin under the curse and humbly looks to God for help. This is a person who's of a lowly spirit. They know they depend upon God. They know they're answerable to God. They know they need God. And they have been crushed by the weight of their own sin and their fallenness and life under the curse, and they look to God for help. And the glorious thing is that the Bible says that God is near to such people. He dwells with such people. Isaiah 66, verse 1, thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me and what is the place of my rest? All these things my hand has made and so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. But this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Psalm 51, verse 17, David says, The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. And I think this is exactly the idea that Jesus presents in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. 
Jesus is talking about those who have been broken by an awareness of their sin and by the hardships of life. They have recognized and understood their own spiritual poverty. Their need is people in a sin-cursed world. They are poor in spirit. And Jesus says to them, not to the strong and to the proud and to the competent, but to the poor in spirit, to they that mourn, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. They will live with me forever in paradise. This is people whom God invites into relationship with Him, those who understand their spiritual poverty, those who say like in the song, naked I come to Thee for dress, helpless I look to Thee for grace. Our text says God dwells with such people, the lowly and the contrite. God is near to the humble. James 4 says that. God resists the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. But a second question we should ask is, for what purpose does God dwell with such people? We've seen something of what it means to have a contrite and lowly spirit, but for what purpose does God dwell with such people? Well, it's not just because they're so nice, God loves their personalities, and He has to be around them. No, God draws near to them because He wants to revive them. God draws near to the humble and to the broken because He wants to give them life. He wants to give healing to the broken and those who are crushed under the weight of their own sins. He wants to meet His people in the place of humility, and He wants to reveal Himself to such people and share relationship with such people because He wants to revive them and restore them and bring them into a place of fellowship with Him. God doesn't value humility and contrition and true penitence because He loves seeing people just grovel on the floor before Him. He wants to go to them in their humility, go to them in their brokenness so that He can save them, so that He could redeem them, so that He can revive them, so that He can restore the soul. But there is a third question we could ask. I know I said there'd be only two, but there is a third question we can ask under this point, and that is, how is it that the high and holy God The God we considered in the first half of this message, who is in the place of His transcendent glory, how is it that the high and holy God can dwell with the contrite and the lowly? As David asked, what is man that that you are mindful of Him? How is it that such a great and glorious God could dwell with the humble and the contrite? Well, our text this morning doesn't tell us how. Our text is simply concerned with the reality itself. But you know, don't you, how it is that God can dwell with such people. God can do this. The high and holy God can dwell with the humble and contrite because of the gospel. The message of the gospel is that the transcendent God of the universe has come near to sinful men and women in the person and work of Jesus Christ. This is His name, Emmanuel, God with us. The ultimate way in which God expresses His desire to be near to broken and contrite people is through the sending of His own Son, Jesus Christ. God is transcendent, high, lofty, eternal, and holy, but this great transcendent God has drawn near to men and women of a broken and contrite spirit through the Lord Jesus Christ. God dwells with man in His Son. 
And this is how he revives the spirit of the lowly and the contrite. This is how God can live in relationship with man because God became a man and dwelt among us and he became a sympathetic high priest and he became a savior for sinners who could bring us into right relationship with the great God of the universe. For all who are broken and contrite, for all who are truly penitent and who have faith in the Lord Jesus, they will have life. They will be revived and they will be reconciled to God and drawn into relationship with Him. I want to close now with a few lines of application for us this morning, and then we'll celebrate communion together. I want to give two lines of application to those of us here who are Christians, those of us who know the Lord. First of all, let us get the balance right. Let us get the balance right. Let us not be guilty of thinking that God is so high that a relationship with Him is impossible. Like He's just so great, so glorious, I could never be in a relationship with Him. My friend, that would be to deny the gospel. God communicates His love for us and His genuine desire to relate to us in sending His Son, Jesus Christ, into the world. And there is a sense in which the whole Bible is moving us toward this conclusion, this reality, that God will dwell with man. That's the theme of the Bible, that the God who is, the God who is revealed in the Bible, He wants to live in relationship with humble and contrite, redeemed men and women. My friend, the Bible's notions of God's transcendence and height are not meant to communicate to you that He's not interested in a relationship with you. God's glory and majesty is not meant to scare you away. But let us not be guilty of the opposite danger. We need balance in this, right? Let's not be guilty of the opposite danger, thinking that God is so close and so near that He's just our buddy, nothing more. That God's our peer, that He's so much like us. Jesus Christ, who is our dearest friend and Savior, is also the eternal Son of God. And our God who is imminent in Christ is also the thrice holy God who dwells in the high and holy place. Brother, sister, the gospel's design is not to bring about low thoughts of God. If anything, it should elevate our sense of the greatness of God. The, the, the effect the gospel is to have on us is not, well, see, after all, God just wants to be my friend and affirm me, and He's so much like me, and I'm so glad that we're connected, me and God. The gospel is designed to enlarge in our minds a sense of the condescension of God. We should never cease to be surprised that God is in relationship with us. God doesn't owe us relationship with Him. He doesn't owe us salvation. I use that word condescension. Some people don't like that term. They say that God is condescending. Of course, if I spoke to you in a way that was condescending, that would be in every way inappropriate, right? We're equals. We're sinners. We're made of the same stuff. If I spoke to you in a way that's condescending, that would be dishonorable and inappropriate. But when speaking of the relationship between God and man, I can hardly think of a more accurate term. What we see in the gospel is that the God who dwells in the high and holy place, He, he scales the gap, the distance that exists between us. God condescends to bring us into relationship with Him. So brothers and sisters, let us seek to maintain a healthy view of God's transcendence on the one hand and God's imminence 
on the other. And may that view of His glory cause us to be so thankful and even surprised by His nearness in the work of His Son, Jesus Christ, who is our Savior. Second point of application for those of us who are Christians. Brother, sister, pursue, pursue by the grace of Christ a lowly and contrite posture before the Lord because it's there that God is pleased to meet you. Pursue a lowly and contrite posture before the Lord because it's there that God is pleased to meet you. Now, it's the opposite of, the wor- of what the world would teach you, right? You want to get anywhere in life, you have to prove that you're self-sufficient, you have to stand on your own two feet. Uh, the world preaches to us an ethic of rugged independence, to be depe- independence, excuse me, to be dependent on others or to acknowledge your own weaknesses or to be broken or to be humble. That's not the way you win or achieve anything in this world, right? You ever read the book Atlas Shrugged by Ayn Rand? Repeats this line again and again. I swear by my life and my love of it that I will never live for the sake of any other man nor ask anyone to live for the sake of mine. A sort of blessed independence, rugged self-sufficiency. I got everything I need in here. I don't need help from anybody else. Humility is no virtue. You have to have pride who you are and what you can achieve. That is not the Christian view. Christianity commends humility and lowliness because that's where God meets people. My friend, God dwells only in two places, and there is no middle ground. God dwells in the high and holy place, and I assure you, you will not be able to approach His height. He dwells in the high and holy place, and with Him or her who is of a humble and contrite spirit. But there is no middle ground. And if you try to meet Him on some sort of middle ground, thinking that you can come into God's presence, standing on your achievements and your religious worth and what you've done to serve Jesus and what you've accomplished for Him and your intelligence, your personality, your self-sufficiency, He will not meet you. You will not know God. There is no middle ground. He dwells in the high and holy place, and He dwells with Him or her who is of a humble and contrite and lowly spirit. The Christian ethic is that you can only go high and reach to God by going low and acknowledging your need. You reach up by bowing down. You are strong when you are weak. You are mighty when you are lowly. In order to know the one who is high and lifted up, you must assume a place of spiritual poverty, of lowliness, of contrition, of real need and wonder of wonders. It's there that God is pleased to meet you. Christianity is not for the strong and self-sufficient. It is for the poor in spirit, for the broken and for the contrite. Last point of application and in closing, and this is for those you wouldn't identify as a Christian. You wouldn't say that you believe the gospel, believe the Bible. For those who do not know the God I've been talking about, the simple point of application to you is that you can know this God. You are not in the same place as Dennis Wise. Can you imagine a more desperate scene? This man who followed Elvis Presley around all his life, who worshiped Elvis Presley, and here he is standing on the walls of Graceland, just, just hoping that he could maybe get a glimpse through the window of Elvis going to the fridge or something like that. You are not in that kind of position with God. There are no walls or barriers between you and God that grace cannot scale. 
The message of the Bible is you can know God. He's given His Word. He's revealed Himself to sinful men so that humble and contrite people can come and be in relationship with Him. You can know God. Friend, there's nothing standing in your way. There is no barrier. You can access your Creator, and He can be to you a Redeemer. Not only are you not in the place of Dennis Wise, you're not in the place of Prince Philip. So disillusioned with his heroes. Only disappointed the more he got to know them. God never disillusions. He never disillusions. Like, I'll just speak to you heart to heart for a moment. I've had a lot of disillusionment in my life. There's a sense in which growing up is a series of disillusionments. William Wordsworth said that in a poem once. He said, my, my eyes can no longer see what I used to see. A certain glory has passed from the earth. Growing up is a series of losses. It's a series of disillusionments. Comes a point as you get older, you become disillusioned with the world around you. Christians can disillusion you. The church can be disillusioning. Parents disillusion you. I am in the happiest marriage under heaven, but I'm telling you marriage is disillusioning. You will not have salvation in your spouse. You may think that that's going to be redemption. That's going to be it. Every relationship in life, every human being is disillusioning. God never disillusions. With God, the truth is always better than the rumor. With God, the shine never wears off, but it only grows brighter and brighter and brighter, even as the world around us grows darker. He will never disappoint you. He will never disillusion you, but you will go on to greater and grander sights of Him as you seek to follow and serve and worship Him. So much in the world is disillusioning. But God will not disappoint you if you will in faith and repentance put your trust in Him. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that as the Creator God, the eternal God whose name is holy, we thank you that you undertook to reveal yourself to us, that you were not content to leave your creatures in their sin and in darkness and in death, but that you took every initiative, even the sending of your own Son into the world to live as a man, to die on the cross so that sinners like us could live in relationship with you. We thank you, Father, that you don't despise humility. You don't despise brokenness and contrition. You don't look down on sinners who are grappling with life in a sin-cursed world, who are grappling with their own spiritual poverty and depravity. You are pleased to draw near to all those who look to you for grace and look to you for help, to bring revival and to bring the restoration of the soul. Please do that for us. In this new year, we pray that every Christian would love the place of humility, would love that posture of lowliness before the Lord that acknowledges the need for grace, that acknowledges the need for help. And may we, in the context of our lowliness, spiritual poverty, experience redemption in Jesus Christ, 
experience revival through you, Father, and what you're pleased to do for those who come to you in search of grace. Please come to us even now. Acquaint us with the humility and contrition of this text, even as we celebrate communion together. Come and sweetly dwell with us and minister to us in the context of all of our sin and all of our need. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.